Hello, you're listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. My guest on this episode is Jim Al-Khalili, physicist, author, and broadcaster, with whom I'll be discussing his latest book, The Joy of Science. Every summer, if the opportunity presents itself, there's nothing I like to do more than to spend a week on what I like to think of as the balcony of Britain, the south coast of England where I grew up. And as luck would have it, my next guest, himself a local, is free to join me this afternoon in Southsea. He is the physicist, best-selling author and presenter of some of the BBC's most engaging science programmes so far this century, Mr. Jim Al-Khalili. Jim, what a pleasure. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Glad to be here. So why are we sat here then, in Rocker, this little place you know in Southsea? So this little restaurant, I've been to a few times. It's five minutes' walk from where I live. So if my wife and I want to go out for a bite to eat, somewhere like this, in fact, you might see there's, there are a number of restaurants along this road leading up to South Sea Seafront, down up to the Common. Some very nice ones. Rocker is, I, I don't know who runs it, I don't know the, the owners, but I know they do nice, straightforward food. It's a place we like to come to, and it's just, as I say, so just on our doorstep. We don't have to drive anywhere. It's a lovely place, and if I read that plaque on the wall right, it opened in 2020. So it's fairly new to the scene here. It is fairly new. I think a lot of the restaurants do have a sort of a... There's a turnover of lots of establishments along this particular road, Osborne Road in, in Southsea. Uh, this one seems to be very popular. So since it opened, it's... Uh, I mean, here we are sitting lunchtime and it's relatively quiet. You come in the evening and it's heaving. <laughs> How would you describe the menu here? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not a lover of seafood, which, you know, living on the coast might seem a bit strange. But... Um, Pub food is fine, and my wife and I like going for walks in the countryside, and so it's always very nice at the end of, of a, a sort of eight, ten mile walk to stop at a pub and have a you know, pie and chips or, or bacon, egg and chips or something like that. Um, the rocker is, is it's not pub food, but it's not fine dining, um, but it's, it's pleasant. And what, the nice thing is a lot of the, the dishes aren't your generic dishes that you'll find in all the other chains of sort of middle-of-the-road restaurants it's it has some uniqueness to it which i really enjoy i'm with you on seafood i, I mean a lot of it is the smell i mean the culinary and, dark web isn't it i, I mean, mean there's yeah, just exactly I, I love cotton chips i love a tuna sandwich you know it's not the, <laughs> anything from the sea the thing about today of course is that we are in the middle of a heat wave some of the highest temperatures on record in this country so um this is normally the sort of time where people like you risk getting sucked into the moronic inferno of Twitter mm. uh, to dispute with conspiracists about the facts of what's happening. Do you try and avoid that at all costs, or do you still find yourself thinking, oh, why did I get into this? I'm, I'm very good at avoiding it. I mean, every now and again, someone will say something so dumb that I feel I have to, as my wife would say, slap them down, which is not nice. I mean, it's... Uh, but sometimes, you know, a response is, is, I think, necessary. But I do it... I never do it in an unpleasant way. I, you know, <laughs> slap down in the, in the gentlest of possible ways. But I never then engage beyond that. I mean, people, as you say, get sucked down into Twitter, into the rabbit hole. And then it can be very tempting, yeah. It's, and, and then someone says something and then they have to respond. And, then, and arguments on Twitter never lead to any resolution because people 
who, who, who tend to argue on Twitter tend to be so firmly fixed in their views and opinions and ideologies that it, no one's going to change anyone's mind. So I tend to w watch it as a spectator. Sometimes if someone's insulting to me, oh, you know, I'll, I'll say something that is not physics related and someone will respond usually with stick to physics, Jim. That, that's red rag to a ball, because then I will say, I'm sorry, but I thought we lived in a democracy. Am I not allowed to have an opinion because I'm a scientist? You know? <laughs> and I'll say that and I'll step away. Invariably, I have, because I have a large following on Twitter, people will jump in to defend me, my, my attack dogs, I call them. I don't need to get involved in arguments. I can sit back and watch this toing and froing. But it's, it's a shame. It's a shame that Twitter is so polarizing uh, because I don't think it leads to, to any enlightened resolution. There's, there are so many issues that are complex, that, that n are nuanced, that require careful debate without you know, heated argument. And we, we find that's absent on Twitter. You know, Twitter is just there for the ex two extreme views that are both 100% certain that they're right, uh -huh. firing missiles at each other. Yeah. To get away from the misery of Twitter and onto <laughs> the joy of science, your latest book, so-called, presumably, because thanks once again to the work of scientists, the pandemic, though perhaps not completely over, is now significantly more manageable, hence why we're able to sit here today with our lovely New Yorker mocktails. Um, but it has come at a price for public trust in many things, regrettably and perhaps most unfairly of all, you might argue, science itself. Mm. Tell me, who is the joy of science for? Because when I read it, I felt you were speaking simultaneously to those who underestimate science, but also those who perhaps overestimate its power mm. and true mm. purpose. It's a sort of corrective, isn't it, to the anti-science brigade and then the devout almost religiously dedicated wing. Yes, I, th I think that's right. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's rather different from my other popular science books in the sense that I'm certainly not preaching to the converted. I'm not explaining fascinating physics about black holes or, or, or quantum mechanics. Uh, partly the book is a celebration of science and science's achievements, but it's also explaining how the process of science works. I start off the book by saying science is not a collection of facts about the world. That's called knowledge. And there are lots of ways of gaining knowledge. Science happens to be a very reliable way of learning about how the world is because it relies on this thing called the scientific method. So really the book is an appeal to wider society, non-scientists, both those who, who are nervous about or suspicious about science, and those who think that science somehow is going to solve all our problems without question, to say, look, this is how science works. In science, you know, we make mistakes. We're allowed to make mistakes. We, we, we try and examine our own biases before we attack the views of others. Uh, and importantly, as you say in the book, it actually gives a true scientist more pleasure to discover that they're wrong so that they know what it isn't absolutely. that they're looking for. It's empowering to admit your mistakes. I always say to, to people, apart from those directly working on uh, the Large Hadron Collider, most physicists would have been much happier if the Higgs boson hadn't been discovered because that would have been a surprise and that would have been, you know, a whole new mystery to solve rather than just ticking a box, yep, we thought it was there and there it is. So getting across what's good and what's bad about science. And I think you're right, the pandemic really has highlighted the need for society to be more scientifically literate, not in the sense of, you know, understanding stuff about quantum mechanics or astronomy or genetics, but simply appreciating what science can and can't do and how science works, rather than just watching an advert 
about some new yogurt or some new um, face cream and because it's, it's spoken by someone in a white lab coat or because it has some chemical name uh, attached to it, suddenly that's good science. Mm. Not all science is good science. So it's really, how do we discriminate? How do we trust and who do we trust uh, when we read something about some scientific uh, or technological achievement? The philosopher Simone Weil called the true definition of science the study of the beauty of the world. She also said, truth is not sought because it is truth, but because it is good. Would you agree with either of those statements or both? I I think so, to, to a large extent. I... I, I'm not sure. I mean, I and I, I suspect many other physicists, we, we, we do what we do, trying to understand the workings of, of the universe, certainly because we believe there is a truth out there. There's, there's an objective truth about the way the world is. We may never reach it. We may only ever perceive it through our own senses. So it, it's, it's maybe somewhat subjective. But there is a truth about the way things are. Um, whether it's the structure of matter or the, the origins of the universe or the, or the, the meaning of life. Um, and so we do seek that truth because we believe we can get closer to it. Not all truths about the workings of the world are simple or indeed beautiful. So beauty isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all. I, 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 the truth is, is truth is, is is beautiful because it's the truth, not because it has some some beauty that's at, apart from the truth. Take us through the scientific method, the thing that you lay out very clearly in the book, because, as you say, it's the scientific method that defines science more than the certainty that people often assume mm. is the key goal of science. Take us through what characterizes the method. Yes, I mean, that, that, that is, I think, the, the most important message, that science is a way of learning, a way of gaining knowledge about the world. Uh, and not all science is good. Not all scientists, you know, scientists are people, after all, so they have their own biases and... and uh, ideological views a scientist wants their theory to be right or the experiment to be right that doesn't necessarily make it right but because science is this collective process uh, uh, whereby we reach consensus about the way things are um, it's self-correcting and when we arrive at an explanation or a theory if we're doing good science we have to acknowledge that that may not be the final answer it may not be the truth we might even be barking up the wrong tree entirely what we say is we have a, an idea a theory a hypothesis that that satisfies all the criteria of a good scientific theory it makes predictions you know it's falsifiable you can you can test it and if it's wrong you have to you know, get rid of it change it in some way but a theory doesn't necessarily mean the truth so a lot of people see you know scientific truth as being the truth of the results of an experiment or the truth of a, of a mathematical equation or a scientific theory. That's, that's, it's a process, it's a journey. We don't know how far we've got to reach before we get to that truth. So you know, Isaac Newton comes up with his law of gravitation. Uh, that, you might have argued, was that's it. You know, he's discovered what gravity is. Einstein comes along centuries later and says, no, that's not the complete story. Gravity is rather different. It's about the nature of space and time. Einstein may not have it completely right, probably most of the way right, but we may have to adjust his theory of relativity. So science is this continuous process of 
honing our understanding about the way the world is and getting closer. That ultimate truth may exist out there. We just don't know how far away it is. We don't know how many layers of the onion we've got to peel back. Um, it's not like arriving at something, right, that's it. Well, I'm 100% certain this is right. We can be almost certain that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. The earth goes around the sun. We can be almost certain about Darwin's theory of evolution. But we should never be completely certain. There's always has to be that room that maybe we were wrong. Maybe the, a, a new theory will come up that's better, that has more power than the existing one. To go back to the pandemic for a moment, that whole experience seemed to suck the joy out of science for a lot of people. It seemed to make science something that was very much imposed, didn't really give us room for enlightening debate, thought, fascination, but was rather just something we had to live mm. under. But you mentioned in a, an interview with Sir Patrick Balance, the UK's chief scientific advisor, that um, this use of the science, this term that the government confected to tie together all of its research, all of its understanding and all of the rules that that produced was an unhelpful term because a scientist no more subscribes to anything called the science than a linguist subscribes to something like the language. Mm, um, mm. Why was that an unhelpful term, particularly during a public health crisis? I, th I think it was broader than that. It wasn't even the fact that, that, that you know, science is, is, uh, is messy and uncertain and, and, and we, we, we have to change our minds. But when it comes to government policy, there's lots of other issues that have to be taken into account. There's public acceptability, there's economics and so on. All scientists can do is offer advice based on the best evidence they have at that time. So following the science suggests that there's something, there's a, there's a, a truth that we have and it has. This is the way things are. This is what we have to do, full stop. It confuses people because then if scientists said, look, following the science means wash your hands and sing happy birthday twice through and you won't catch COVID. And then a few months later, by the summer of 2020, the advice was actually the, this virus is airborne and you know, so you should keep windows open and mostly spend your time outdoors, wear masks, social distance. So people said, well, hang on a minute. The science said we don't catch COVID if we wash our hands. No, that was our current understanding based on incomplete information and data. The, the method of science, the process, is one that's ever-changing based on our understanding. So I think that was the, 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 the issue, that the science suggested there was some neatly packaged you know, wisdom, like some sort of holy book that says, thou shalt do this because this is the truth. Science isn't like that. What would most improve communication from government around scientific discovery, the scientific method, especially where it informs public policy? Yeah, I mean, I think... A lot of scientists will say we need more science and engineering graduates going into politics. And that was something you spoke to Patrick Balance about. Yeah, wasn't he? Did it, he say the fast track to the civil the, service the, the takes in about there's like 10% of people with a scientific yeah, background? Tiny fraction. And we certainly need that. But I think, given the reality of the, the people who, who will go into politics, um, you know, they're more likely to be from the arts and humanities, you know, whether it's Oxford PPE graduates or whatever or economists or historians, that's fine. What is important is that politicians and policymakers and civil servants need to understand the scientific method. They don't need to understand science. They don't need to be experts in a particular field in science or to have studied science at university. They need to understand how science works. So all those lessons I talk about in my book, 
examining your biases, admitting your mistakes when you, you when you realize your mistake, changing your mind is okay, pursuing sort of the nature of truth, never being certain about something. Politicians, I mean, I always say, you know, it, wouldn't it be refreshing if politicians could admit their mistakes when they were wrong, you know, because it re- for science it's really empowering to say, oh, actually, no, I was wrong all, all, all along. I didn't have this bit of information. I've changed my mind, like we did with the uh, public policy on, 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 on during the pandemic. Um, but politicians just need to be aware of how science works, not to be suspicious of science or afraid of scientists or, or see scientists as some other species. Uh, it helps when we have politicians who trust the scientific advice, and we did. We have seen that with the, with the Sage Committee, with people like Patrick Valance as a um, um, science advisor. Every department in government should have a scientific advisor. That doesn't mean that everything we do has to rely solely on scientific evidence. But scientific evidence is as econ- as important as economic evidence, as important as public acceptability. It's part of the mix. You've advocated for a dedicated science minister in the UK government. Mm. The idea of a science minister, of course, raises some pretty serious ethical questions about how much a person in that role could effectively keep politics out of science whilst mm. also keeping science firmly in politics. But isn't there also a danger that a minister of science could be tempted to use their power to beat rational thought into the public? I mean, the big dilemma government faced throughout the pandemic was how they squared the belief in the value of freedom with optimizing the chances of saving the most lives possible, that sort of Mm. utilitarian calculus. How would a science minister avoid making that calculus the yardstick by which all policy should be measured? I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm I'd be as concerned about avoiding going down that utilitarian route of you know, we've got to maximise the, the benefits for most people at the expense of, of, of personal freedoms. I, I think rational argument about what is right or what is wrong has to be something we, we, we focus on. Um, a science minister's job is to do that, is, is, is to fight that corner. That doesn't mean that those will be policies that will be implemented. And certainly, you know, the the Chancellor of the Exchequer is going to argue for, you know, make an economics argument about whether or not to raise or lower taxes. The Chancellor isn't expected to, to, uh, to weigh that against public acceptability. That's the job of government as a whole to say, well, you know, if we, if we, if we raise taxes, you know, particularly in, in our, our system in the UK, you know, if we, if we do this, we're not going to get elected next time round and so on. So I think there's a, as a collective government has to look at lots of different aspects. But I would argue that a science minister's job is absolutely to put across the rational argument based on scientific evidence. They, are, they become the spokespersons for the way we do science. Hi, I think we are ready to order, yeah. I think I will order, please, the um, large chicken Caesar salad. And I'll go slightly less healthy. I'll go for the smoky rock and melt. Thank you very much. One point you make in the book is that you don't lose out on awe or wonder at the world simply by interrogating the world as a material phenomenon. Mm, mm. You mentioned that rather famous poem by Walt Whitman. It's the learned astronomer, isn't it? I've had that reaction 
when I've started to talk about science, particularly at a gathering, at a party, you know, oh, you know, the shutters come down, oh, Jim's being all, all uh, Mr. Spock on us, you know. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the idea that science is cold, hard rationalism, that it's based on logic, there's no room for creativity or mystery or emotion. So, and, of course, that's completely wrong. You know, there's, 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 there's so much that science adds to our appreciation of the world there's there's a there's a joy in learning about how the how the world works through science that is i I say that in the book is almost spiritual in in a non-religious sense but people whether their uh, experience of science education at school or uh, and then they or they weren't good at science usually probably because they didn't have a good science teacher science has become this other this thing that's done by people with with no personality you know the the, the, the geekiness the, the nerdiness of science and that's seen as a you know as a negative and yet science is so broad it's so varied and it's, it takes all sorts of people to do all sorts of different kinds of science but what we learn about the world through science adds to our appreciation of it and uh, you know uh, the, uh, Richard Feynman the great American physicist says it doesn't detract if you learn something about the way something is, where you know if you look up at the, the, a starry night, if you understand those stars are, are, are hundreds of light years away, they're giant, you know, blobs of, of gas that's in, in, uh, superheated, and the r- nuclear reactions are going on side side. That doesn't lessen your enjoyment of the night sky. Understanding biology doesn't lessen your appreciation of of, of a beautiful flower. It adds to it. Uh, and so in the book, I use the example of the rainbow to, uh, to show that appreciating the beauty of some natural phenomenon doesn't end, doesn't, isn't, isn't, uh, uh, doesn't suffer if we know more about how that natural phenomenon comes about. So the, the rainbow, for example, you look at the beautiful colours in the sky, you might think that a scientist comes along and tries to sort of unpack that. But of course, the one, the one thing I talk about in the book is, for example, two people standing alongside each other looking at a rainbow are looking at different rainbows. No two people see the same rainbow. We each see our own unique rainbow. And that's because those droplets of rain that, for example, are reflecting red light in a particular direction, that red light is entering my eye and my eye alone. It's a different droplet of water that's reflecting red light into somebody else's eyes. So just understanding a bit about the, the science of rainbows makes it even more beautiful, even more wondrous than simply appreciating the colours. Let's talk about bad science, bad science that we live with every day, which you feel hasn't yet been fully exposed for what it is. Bad science which is potentially harmless, but may cause people to waste a lot of their money, whether it's a particular cosmetic product, stuff that goes under the radar. Is mm. there anything? For me, my, my, my pet dislike, I think, is alternative medicine. That a lot of these remedies are couched in semi pseudoscientific language and are made to sound like they're established. And think absolutely things like acupuncture and homeopathy um, uh, and uh, Reiki healing, you know, sort of has a spiritual dimension. My argument is always, you know, you call them alternative medicine because, you know, mainstream medicine hasn't worked and people will appeal to, the, to, to these other remedies. If there was proof that they worked, they wouldn't be called alternative medicine. They would just be called medicine. Uh, but the fact is, not only do we not have evidence, and this, is, this is, comes down to what is good and what is bad science, and what do you regard as good evidence for something and, and, and good statistics. And 
uh, you know, are you doing double-blind clinical trials? How biased are you? Uh, do you have some uh, uh, vested interest in seeing a particular result? Um, all the things we try and avoid if we're doing science very well. In fact, some of these, these, these ideas. But the other aspect is that there isn't an explanation for, say, how homeopathy might work. It, it's against everything we understand in science. Now, other non-scientists would say, well, look, you scientists don't know everything. There's stuff that you still have to figure out. How do you know this isn't one of those things? You, homeopathy works. We just don't know how. The, the issue is that if homeopathy did work, then it must rely on something other than our current understanding of science. In fact, it's worse than that. It suggests that our current understanding of how the world works through science is wrong because the same uh, uh, mechanisms or explanations or theories that will say homeopathy can't work are the ones that explain so much so accurately about the rest of the world. We wouldn't have the modern world without those theories. Well, if they're wrong about something, then they're wrong. And therefore, what is the alternative? What is the better theory that explains everything that we explain so successfully now, but also has an explanation for something like homeopathy, regardless of logic and common sense? So what I find frustrating very often is that otherwise well-informed, intelligent, good-intentioned people buy into ideas that are anti-science, that are, that are based on pseudoscience, even though they may not realise it, or they may think they rely on, on, on good science. And I'm not sure how, to, you know, you, one might argue, well, you know, God bless the placebo effect, you know, homeopathy works because it's a placebo, you know, the, you, you, you're not having any, a single atom, uh, the likelihood of a single atom of the active ingredient in this distilled water is so small that you are, it's, 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 the, it's, the, it's water, it's a sugar pill, it's, it's a placebo. And people say, well, look, placebo works. Yes, but you're deceiving people. You're, you're lying to people. Ethically, that's not right. You might be making them better, but surely there's a more honest way of using the placebo effect without having to couch it in magic or, or, or superstition or spirituality or pseudoscience. You know, there's, there's a, a rational, logical way of doing things that is more honest. Is there a figure in the history of science that you feel doesn't get as much credit as he or she ought to? For me, I guess there are people like the great English physicist Paul Dirac. Paul Dirac, there was a, there was a poll some years ago carried out by um, a magazine called Physics World, which is the, the publication of the, the Institute of Physics, the learned body of physicists in, in the UK. So, niche magazine. It's the sort of the thing that would, would appear on Have I Got News For You. <laughs> they carried out a survey among practicing physicists and it's, it's a magazine that's read worldwide. Then Paul Dirac came second to Isaac Newton. He was the second greatest ever English physicist. He was one of the geniuses of the 20th century. You know, we hear about Schrodinger because we know about Schrodinger's cat that's in the box that's done alive. We hear about Heisenberg because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Paul Dirac was a giant. He was regarded as the genius that all these other geniuses thought was so much cleverer than them. He was the first person to bring quantum mechanics and Einstein's relativity together. He developed quantum field theory, which is the, the current version of quantum mechanics. He Obviously, he won a Nobel Prize, but he was a very shy character. He was very introverted. He was very much on the, on the spectrum. 
And he wasn't the sort of person who would push himself forward into the limelight. So it's a shame that someone like Dirac isn't as well known. And yet, one of the most famous equations in science is named after him. There's a whole mathematical techniques that carry his name. So as a physicist, you would know the word Dirac, even if it's assigned to an equation or a symbol, even if you didn't know much about the man himself. It's a shame, because he should be better known. Fascinating. Well, I'm sure now more people will know about him. (laughs) What piece of scientific ingenuity, be it a theory, discovery, formula, or thought experiment, gave you immense joy to learn about the first time and which has never really stopped giving you joy mm. to think about there's two if i can if i can try and summarize them briefly so i don't go on too much and give a whole lecture both i encountered as an undergraduate studying physics at university um one is a, is, is mathematical we were learning about um james maxwell's theory of electromagnetism describing the nature of light electricity and magnetism and there's an algebraic derivation whereby you start with equations describing the nature of electric fields and magnetic fields. Maxwell was the person to, to come up with a theory to show they're, they're connected uh, with each other. You can work, I remember the lecturer in the class, I remember my second year undergraduate, going through the algebra on the board, starting with these equations describing electricity and magnetism and arriving at another equation at the end, which is called the wave equation. And in that equation is a letter, a symbol. And he says, and that letter there, that quantity, that is a very special, important constant. That is the speed of light. And that's where Maxwell showed that light itself is just oscillating electric and magnetic waves traveling through empty space. So the idea that you can start from electric and magnetic fields and arrive at the speed of light, 300 million meters per second, I just found just absolutely incredible. I, I remember the, the shiver going down my spine listening to it. And I remember turning around to my friends sitting on the, on, in the lecture theatre with me. And they just really gave me a lot of abuse for being such a geek. But I still find that incredible. The other example is an experimental result going back to the middle of the 20th century. One of the tests of Einstein's general theory of relativity, whereby uh, it's shown that gravity slows time down. So time runs slower, the stronger the gravitational field. This experiment by, carried out by two American physicists called Pound and Rebka, they had discovered, they had newly discovered, that uh, atoms, certain radioactive atoms give off light um, uh, in terms of gamma rays of a very specific frequency. And a, another atomic nucleus nearby, if it's the same nucleus, it will absorb that light because, you know, the amount of energy one nucleus gives off can be absorbed by the other. And so, so one is excited, it gives off energy, it de-excites, and then the other one absorbs the energy and it excites by the same amount because they're identical. Well, they had identical atoms at the top and bottom of a tower, and the ones at the bottom gave off these gamma rays, and the, the, the nuclei at the top wouldn't absorb the gamma rays, because they saw them traveling at a different frequency because time was running at a different rate. They dropped those nuclei down the tower so they're traveling at some speed. And because of the Doppler effect, you know, they are... As it's coming towards you, the frequency, the pitch is high because it's squeezing the waves as it's approaching you. But as it moves past you, it starts stretching the waves to longer wavelengths, so the pitch drops. Um, and so these, these nuclei that are seeing these gamma rays coming up with a particular frequency. 
And if they're not moving, they, get, they won't absorb the gamma rays because they're, the gamma rays are emitted from atoms in a deeper gravitational well because they're closer to the center of the Earth. So their frequency is lower because you can think of the, their frequency like a clock ticking. Uh, so they have a certain frequency. If, if time is running slower, the frequency is lower. The ticking, the distance between successive waves is, yeah. is, is longer. You drop them, because of the Doppler shift, they, as far as those nuclei are concerned, that light is coming at them with a higher frequency. It's the, the, Doppler, it's the, it's the ambulance approaching you rather than the ambulance moving away. And, and they can drop them at exactly the right speed so the frequency compensates for the fact that it's lower frequency uh, from the emitted and they absorb them again. Now, look, this, this, is, this is a whole lecture's worth <laughs> that, that I'm trying to explain in a few minutes. Listeners are going to be rewinding this again and again and, and again. I'm, and I'm waving my hands around <laughs> wildly because I don't have access to a blackboard. But, uh, but that, I still, it blows my mind that that is the proof that gravity literally slows time down. That experiment confirmed it. It's called the gravitational redshift experiment. And it's just beautiful. I know everyone, I, I teach it now to my own students, and I have done for many, many years. And I try and avoid, you know, getting all teary-eyed and shiver down the spine when I'm explaining it, because it still means so much to me. Such rich examples you've given there. Thank you so much for that. This book is such an excellent companion. And I just want to say a big thank you to you, Jim, for joining me to discuss it. My pleasure. I've enjoyed the food as well. The burger was very nice. It's also taught me many interesting things about rainbows, one of which you mentioned earlier. The other, you're going to have to buy the book to find out. (laughs) Thanks again, Jim. (laughs) 